Good evening. It's good to see you here this evening. Thank you for being here. Look forward to opening God's Word with you. I'm really pleased to have an opportunity to do that, to open God's Word with you. I will stop short of saying I'm thrilled to be the one standing up here. <laughs> but um, these things are good for us to stretch ourselves and try to be making better efforts and be, becoming teachers of God's Word. So you're doing that for me, and you're going to, I assume, bear with me this evening, and I appreciate that. It occurred to me, you might put this on your calendars, I'm going to uh, dub, if you don't mind, January 17th as Preacher Appreciation Day. <laughs> because I think <laughs> by the end of this you may um, come to have a greater appreciation for our preachers. Um, I do. <laughs> so. But seriously, um, I am... Glad to be with you. I'm glad to be singing these songs. We sang, Oh, worship the King, the one who is all glorious above, and gratefully sing his wonderful love. Thank you, Joseph, for that song. It's, that will tie very, very well into um, the things we'll try to t uh, speak about this evening. Um, we'll be talking about knowing the Lord. And... I don't have to tell you that if we want to be God's people, we have to know the Lord. We need to know Him, and we need to know His ways. And that's the reason I had, um, I asked us to read uh, Jeremiah 31. And Derek did that very beautifully for us. Jeremiah 31, we use, um, by way of about knowing the Lord. And as I said, I don't have to tell you it's essential how essential and how important this is. Because what we see in Jeremiah 31 is that God is telling about the time that we live in now where He wants to have a relationship with His people. And what He says about this is that He's going to make this covenant, this new covenant. It's not like the old one. We'll talk about that some. He says he wants to be our God, and he wants us to be his people. And in doing that, what he wants to do is he wants to write his law in our hearts. And he says that everyone who wants to become part of this new covenant they will be the people who know him. And he says, you're not going to be teaching. I'm not going to be teaching you, and you won't have to teach me realistically, although we'll tread kind of close to those waters this evening. We don't have to teach each other to know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And that is absolutely true. And I thank, again, Derek for reading that. I don't have to tell you these things. And, in fact, I don't have to tell you what a disaster it is. <laughs> When people do not know the Lord. You know your scriptures well. You know the passages like Hosea 4, verse 6. My people, you remember, are destroyed for lack of knowledge. They didn't know the Lord. Um, and it was a disaster to them. Um, it resulted in, in uh, bad things. And I don't have to tell you. <laughs> that we can, we can easily forget some things that we once knew. Um, you can think of all the statements in Deuteronomy where he says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do great things for you, and I'm going to bless you greatly. And then he says, but you watch out 
Watch out. And make sure lest you forget the Lord your God. How can it be? Is it possible that we can forget the Lord our God? Well, yeah, it's possible. Um, and it turns out that just after that generation, so Joshua and that good generation that he was part of, they were faithful to the Lord, and they knew the Lord, and they followed the Lord. But it says in Judges chapter 2 that a generation came up after Joshua. And it says, and I quote, a generation that did not know the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done in Israel. And so we're considering these things not, not because I really think that we've actually forgotten anything, although there is, that is a possibility. But I want us to make sure we're making a very good effort um, of, to, in, in an effort to understand who God is and in an effort to do what Psalm 145 speaks about. It says, One generation will commend your works to the next generation. And this is how we keep from having any generation come about of God's people that it, that it could be said that they had forgotten the Lord. And so we're going to continually do this and we're going to declare his mighty acts to people so that we really know who he is. Um, and so our aim with this lesson tonight is just to, to really make sure we have a well-rounded, a really complete view of who God is. Now that sounds like a tall task. Um, but if we can at least refresh our appreciation, because I guess, I guess I should say right here, let's be perfectly honest, I am ill-equipped, maybe any one of us, to, to really fully say, okay, I, I'm, we're going to discuss everything there is to know about who God is. But I'm not on my own here. I'm not on my own. We'll be reading very closely the words of God himself when he is revealing he himself is revealing who he is and what he's about. And it's very, it's very exciting to read this. But, and, and so what we'll be doing is we'll be um, uh, living in the book of Exodus. So here's where we're going. We're not there yet. Where we're going is Exodus chapter 34 because it's this concise, very, very helpful passage that will... Show us, and God Himself, in His own words, tells us who He is. And I want you to understand, and this is what I intend to say I think this passage is just absolutely pivotal. It is a cornerstone uh, to our understanding of the Scriptures and to our understanding of God. And I'll go farther and make a, a bold claim, and it's up to you, okay, to test this and see if this is true. And, of course, I'm going to be making an effort to show it. But I believe that this passage explains all of God's dealings with mankind. All of them from the beginning of time. And it's summed up in who God is and His character. Okay, that's where we're going. But first, we are going to start in Ezekiel chapter 18. And we're going to start with sour grapes. In fact, if you had a PowerPoint this evening... Right now at the top of the PowerPoint, um, it would either say something about sour grapes or perhaps a provoking proverb. How about that? In Ezekiel 18, a provoking proverb about sour grapes. What are, what are we saying here? Well, what we have is um, God addressing the people because their words were not right and they are not acceptable. 
And we'll see why that is. So in in Ezekiel 18, verse 1, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, What do you mean by using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? So this is what the people are saying. Listen carefully. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. Do you hear what's being said? As I live, declares the Lord God, you are surely not going to use this proverb in Israel anymore. So what's being said? The fathers eat the sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. There's a lot being said about that. Some things that question God's character. They're saying all this stuff that's come upon us, this is because of something our fathers did. And it's unfair to us that this should be the case. And it's coming from God's hand. And so if you're um, sliding God's ways and God's things, this is speaking against the Lord. And so there are a number of things to address here, which we will not all write this minute. Some will have to wait for the middle part of our lesson. But suffice it to say that this stems from a poor understanding, a very, uh, just a poverty-stricken understanding of who God is and what his ways are like. In verse 25, you say the way of the Lord is not right. Here now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? So, we're going to illustrate from Exodus, from the book of Exodus, this lack of understanding they had of who God is. And if we can solidify that in our minds, that's going to help us avoid a whole host of pitfalls, a whole host of issues. And it's going to bring us uh, closer to being that kind of people that God wants. As I said, we're headed for Exodus chapter 34, and we're still not going there yet. First, I'm going to ask you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Now, we are embarking Wednesday evenings on this study of Exodus. This is going to be very profitable for us. And Mr. Bunting is teaching us. And in the very first lesson he taught... He pointed out, and he is absolutely right, that the book of Exodus, we should consider that to be more than just a telling or a history of, you know, the things God is doing and bringing the people out of of the land of Egypt. We get its name that way. They're coming out. It's an exodus, and that's all very good and very appropriate. It is that, but it is something much more important than just a retelling of these things. The book of Exodus reveals God to us. And he's right to point that out. It absolutely reveals God to us. The children of Israel at this time didn't really know who God was and what he was about. Uh, the, the, The people of Egypt certainly did not know who God was and what he was about. And everybody is going to learn, and God is going to show them all who he is. Uh, Pharaoh did not know who God was um, and dismissed him. Even Moses, you know, even Moses did not truly know the Lord in the way he needed to. Now, we're um, we're not trying to criticize Moses, but... 
He was given the opportunities and he came to know the Lord um, in the way the Lord intended. And we will too. So the Lord is beginning to reveal himself to this generation of his, uh, the, the, the people of Israel that he's going to make his special people. And he begins by telling Moses, Moses is going to have to go to the people. Who has sent me to the people? God, who do I need to tell them has sent me to you? He says, I am has sent me, uh, I am has sent me to you. That's what God told him to say. I am. And he goes on to tell Moses, I am who I am. That's where we, we get the word Jehovah, God's name from the words I am. I am who I am. Now, I have to say, here's, here's where we get in deep waters. <laughs> I don't know everything that's being said when the Lord says, you know who I am? I am who I am. I'm pretty sure God is saying something about his eternal nature. That's part of it. I'm, I'm pretty sure about that. That he's saying, I'm the one who just exists. And I, but then, but then by saying, I am who I am, I think what he's saying is, everything you need to know about me is tied up in my character. And I am who I am. We tell Christians, remember who you are. What do you mean? Be who you are. God is who he is. And he's beginning to show the people who he is. Okay, when we come to Exodus 20, the people have come out of Egypt. And it's that time, you know it very well, God is establishing a covenant with them. And he's giving, him the, giving them the Ten Commandments. That's, you remember the Ten Commandments are found in Exodus 20. It's maybe an easy way of remembering. And as part of the law he's giving to them in the covenant, he gives these Ten Commandments. And contained within these Ten Commandments, God gives them a description of himself that really helps explain why they need to obey him and submit to, to him. And we'll, we'll see that here. Ver, uh, Exodus 20, verse 1, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Jehovah, the Lord your God. Who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. Now listen very carefully. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children on the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. Now we're going to have some questions about what is being said there. Because reading this apart from anything else, we might think, what is this about the Lord? It's like you're saying there was a generation. Wait a minute, is this what Ezekiel 18 they were saying in Ezekiel 18? It's like, it's our fathers. And now we're getting the brunt of it because our fathers were the problem. Is, is this affirming what they were saying in Ezekiel 18? We have some questions. What is this about God's character? What is he saying? And he says, verse 6, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. So it leaves us with some questions here. 
which we certainly will intend to um, answer and make clear. But God begins to reveal himself, and these are the things he says about himself that are crucial, absolutely essential for them to know. He's the one who visits the iniquity, the one who shows loving kindness to thousands. Um, we now, now we flip, now we get to Exodus 34, and I'm going to repeat this Exodus 34 thing over and over because I really want us to have this firmly ingrained in our memory. But the reason we're going here, a lot, a lot of this will be a repetition of that Exodus 20, those statements there. But it's fleshed out a little bit more on several of the statements. And um, it is uh, just a very impactful thing that happens here. Let's just recap quickly what happens in the intervening time. This is important. Between Exodus chapter 20 and Exodus 34, a lot happened. So, here's, here's how it went. God's trying to establish his covenant relationship with the people. And he does so, he, he presents them with his law, and he says, you need to keep this law, and I will bless you if you do that. And the people say, we will do it. And this is a, a start of a beautiful, uh, beautiful thing. The people say, we will do it. And then just a few short days later, what were the first two of the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven or carved image of something. What did they do? You know, it, they melt down all their gold jewelry and make themselves a god, a carved image, a golden cow of all things. This is your god, O Israel, that brought you up out of the land of Egypt. What, a, what an insult. What, and just how quickly... Can we get from saying, yes, Lord, we'll do what you say, and then we, we for, we've forgotten who God is and forgotten to fear him, and we've got, forgotten everything he said about himself. And God is angry, and rightly so. And he's ready to punish them. He's ready to, in, in fact, wipe them out entirely, right? And he says, okay, Moses, just maybe just stand back because I'm, I'm, I'm going to blot them out. And you also know very well, you remember that Moses interceded for them and became, became kind of a, uh, a foreshadowing, right, of the, the way the Messiah would, would um, what he would do, right, in saying, you know, I'll take, I'll take the, the blame that was due to, to them and to, you know, don't, don't blot them out, your people. He intercedes on their behalf there in Exodus chapter 32. And here's a very remarkable thing, but it's not unique. A remarkable thing happened, Exodus 32, verse 14. So the Lord changed his mind about the harm which he said he would do to his people. I have some questions about that too, um, which we can address. And what we're left with is... A people that are already proving to be very difficult. And Moses is realizing this. And he realizes he has an impossible task ahead of him. How can I go in front of all these people? They're already showing this is, this is impossible. How can I do this? And I can't do this, God, unless you go with me. And unless you show me, help me here. Show me something to help me. And that's where we come to our text because he's going to ask God to show him his glory. I think Moses wants to be impressed by who God is. 
Say, give me something to give me the courage and the, the whatsoever, whatever it is. Give me the whatever it is to go with this people and to lead them, right? And in Exodus 33, verse 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will also do this thing of which you have spoken, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray thee, show me thy glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you. And this is very important. And will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious on whom I will be gracious. And will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. Of course, he says, you cannot see my face and live. You can't behold with the naked eye the glory of God. He can't do that exactly. He can't do that much for him. And that, that cannot happen in a man live. He says, I'm gonna, I'll pass by. He made the arrangements that he would show Moses his goodness, not his full glory, but his goodness. And he says he will proclaim the name of the Lord before him. So we said, who is the Lord? Who is the Lord and what is he about? He's going to tell us. He's going to tell Moses and then we gain a great deal by, by hearing what he is said. The arrangements are made. Moses goes to the place. And in chapter 34, verse 5, And the Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as he um, called upon the name of the Lord. Or called out with the name of the Lord. Jehovah. I don't know what he was saying. But he was calling on the name of the Lord, seeking his favor. So, verse 6, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. Remember he said, I'm going to proclaim the name of the Lord before you. So he proclaimed the Lord, Jehovah. The Lord God. But that's not all he says. The Lord, the Lord God. Compassionate and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in loving kindness and truth. This means faithfulness. Who keeps loving kindness, he says again. Who keeps loving kindness for thousands. Who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Yet, and this is what we read in Exodus 20. Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers. And here's that statement. On the children and the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. God says, here is who I am. Here is my name. This is the most important thing we'll say for the entirety of this evening. This is who the Lord is, and he wants us to grasp this. And I know that because as we go throughout, um, really, in fact, all the scripture, which we don't do tonight, right? No, but through, through the scripture, we absolutely will see that these very words, these very thoughts are repeated uh, incessantly throughout scripture, trying to get us to see and really grasp and understand who God is. Um, so this is, this is who the Lord is. What you have here 
is a God, it says, who is compassionate and gracious. This sounds, these are very soft and um, comforting and um, very affirming words. Keeps loving kindness for thousands and forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. That sounds like one side of things. And then there's this, what sounds like another side of things. He says, yet by no means will he leave the guilty unpunished. So, he is the God who is the God of wrath. And we're well acquainted with this idea. Um, so, these are two sides of things, and we, we view them to be these polar opposites. I'm not sure that's a good thing for us to do. Um, and actually, here, so the illustration here is, well, there was a coin here at some point. Somebody, okay, I'm serious. Right now, does somebody have a coin I can borrow? I'm absolutely serious. In your pocket or in your purse? I see a couple of people digging. I'm serious. Right now, I want to, uh, yeah, okay. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Julie. <laughs> All right. Oh, this is a beautiful coin. Thank you. Oh, wow. What is this? <laughs> this is five euros, five dollars something. All right. Canadian dollars. Um, this will serve as an illustration. Look, if Jesus can ask for a denarius and say, show me a denarius and make a lesson out of it, I can too. <laughs> this lesson's different. Uh, what, what I'm saying here is this. We view God's wrath and his anger about sin and disobedience to be like this polar opposite thing to his mercy and his love. And I think we do that to our peril. I think it's like show, looking at a coin. And if I show you this side, it's a little, nah, of course it's small, but this, this is smaller, and this is smaller. This is different than if I show you this side of the coin. And you say, yeah, there, you can see that those are different in a way. And it's, but you know what I'm going to say. It's the same coin. It's the same coin. And so it's not that God acts one way and then he acts the other way. And no, God is really perfectly consistent to who he is and to his character. And I'm going to really make my best effort to illustrate that in the lesson tonight. That God is perfectly consistent, like this coin. Thank you. Um, it's the same thing. We're just seeing two different sides of it in different ways. We need to, get, we need to press on. But what I'm, what I'm trying to say here is that a proper understanding of God is going to, in, in, in his ways, it's going to have to include an appreciation for his wrath and that uh, side of things equally along with a, an appreciation of his love, his loving kindness and his mercy and his forgiveness. And in fact, what you see a lot of times is people have a, a wrong emphasis. They emphasize one thing or the other. And you kind of, you already know what I'm really trying to say here. This causes a lot of problems. If people view God to be a God of wrath, strictly, and they don't see his other ways. And some people say, well, you know, the God of the Old Testament, he's the God of wrath. And the God of the New Testament, okay, so here's the other side of things you see, is he's a God of love and acceptance and um, uh, inclusion and these kinds of things. And while both of these are true, we've gone to really ex real extremes, and we're not truly understanding who God is. And it's causing all kinds of wrong understandings about God. Wrong doctrines that result from it. Wrong worldviews. We've just gone completely wrong because we don't understand um, that God is both of these. As I said, we see this thread throughout Scripture. And we'll see that His ways 
apply to his dealings with nations. Everything that is said here in Exodus 34 will show, will, will explain his dealings with nations, and we'll, we'll point that out. And it explains his dealings with individuals. See, every one of us individually, this is how the Lord will uh, act toward us. And that'll be kind of two major sections of our lesson quickly. And then the end of that will be an attempt to show that this Exodus 34 is its ultimate fulfillment and its, high, its highest fulfillment is in the salvation that God has intended for you know, all of time and even before time. But what, I, what we're saying is that this thread runs all throughout Scripture. It's hard not to think of um, and spend, in fact, all our time <clears throat> flipping to different passages and seeing just how closely they are related. But just a couple to get us started, and then we'll start talking about his dealings with nations. If you think of Romans chapter 11, in verse 22, can we see both sides of this coin in Romans eleven twenty-two? Behold, then, the kindness and severity... Of God. To those who fell, severity, but to you, God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And you remember that this is talking about the Gentiles being added in. They're made part of God's tree. He's cut off the, the ones who are going to be punished. And we see both sides of this God's kindness. God's severity. We can't do a full explanation of that passage, but it sounds to me a lot like what God told Moses, you know, before that spectacular event in chapter 33. He said, and I will show mercy on whom I show mercy, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. The kindness and the severity of God. His wrath is more prominent in Romans chapter 1. He says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all uh, ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. And he goes on to say they knew God. They should have re really had a good understanding of who God is. And God had made it completely evident to them. And they had no excuse not to know who he was. And they suppressed what they knew and chose not to know God. And his wrath was upon them. His love and his, his loving kindness and favor and mercy toward us are more uh, in view and prominent in Romans chapter 8. We read from that this morning. Who is able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so all of these things threaded all throughout scripture. We, we could, we'd be here till next week and later <laughs> finding all the places where that is shown to be true in the case. And the beautiful, beautiful connections. <clears throat> but we need to see that God treats all nations and always has on the basis of these, um, his ways, his ways in this passage. We know that God rules in the affairs of men. <clears throat> this is seen from the very earliest pages. Think about Genesis chapter 6. What's this? The flood, right? And what happened when, when um, God looked at the earth and looked at man in Genesis chapter 6? He looked down and he said, Every, he saw that every intent of the thought of man's heart, every intent of the thought of man's heart, was only evil continually. I mean, that sounds as bad as it could possibly get, right? 
And he was sorry that he made man at that point. And, so, and he, of course, as you know, he said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, for I am sorry I made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. <clears throat> so there's Noah, righteous, and not part of that worldly, wicked ways. And, but I want you to notice God exercises every aspect of his character in this thing. The New Testament actually helps inform us about, about this and what's going on. First uh, Peter chapter 3 says, and we'll just reference it quickly, says the patience of God, listen to this, the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. It's not that he's just sitting around waiting on the ark to be done. What is that about the patience of God? It's, it's related to his character. He's slow to anger. And he's willing to forgive. Slow to anger. So that's, part, that's that part. But then 2 Peter chapter 2 says, just like he didn't spare the angels who sinned, he did not spare the ancient world in the days of Noah. He's talking about the flood. He blotted them out. And so we see both sides. He's slow, he's willing to, slow to anger, willing to forgive. But he can't leave the guilty unpunished. And so his, his character is illustrated in that. If you come forward to Genesis, we're kind of going a little bit chronologically. <clears throat> to Genesis chapter 15, there's a very interesting statement that kind of touches on some things we've seen before. Because this is the promise to Abraham. You're in a land, Abraham, that's not yours, but I'm going to bring your descendants back here after their captivity, and I'm going to give it to them. And when he says, he explains why he's not doing it right now. Remember what he says? Genesis 15, verse 16. Then, in the fourth generation, they, your descendants, shall return here. Now that's... Does fourth generation ding-a-ling anything that we've already said this evening? So pay attention. Then in the fourth generation, they shall return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet full. So the Lord is not going to wipe out the Amorites yet. He's going to be uh, patient with them. They're not as bad as they can get yet. And it just so happens, it's interesting that it just so happens that it's, he's going to call it four generations just like we're reading, God is going to visit the iniquity on the fourth generation. Okay? We're, we'll explain more about that later. Um, but what you see is, again, an implied willingness of God to wait and see, uh, so to speak. But then we come, uh, maybe just very nearly on the same page or the next, to Genesis chapter 18. And you know this too, because it's Sodom and Gomorrah. And we're I'm realizing we're going to have to pick up the pace. But listen to what the Lord, how the Lord addresses this. Now, he knows that Sodom and Gomorrah are very wicked, but what he does is extremely interesting. Because in verse 20, he says, And the Lord said, The outcry of Sodom and Gomorrah is indeed great, and their sin is exceedingly grave. This sounds like as bad as it gets. Now, verse 21. I will go down now and see if they have done entirely according to its outcry which has come to me. And if not, I will know it. The Lord knows. He doesn't have to come down 
in the flesh or in the, in the spirit, whatever it is um, that, he, that you read about him doing, he doesn't have to come down to see. But you, you can tell me I'm wrong here if, I, if, I've, if I've misread this, but I think what's happening here is God is going to see in person because he's willing to say, surely it can't be. And can I, can I spare this city? And of course, you know very well the very powerful way that Abraham interceded and, and said, and he called upon the character of God. He says, um, far be it from you to, to slay the righteous with the wicked. And he says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And Moses, or, uh, Abraham knew God. And so, yes, he knows that the judge of the earth, all the earth will do what is right. And by coming down and seeing and doing, he's going to be able to clearly demonstrate that what he's doing is right. And then Abraham, of course, interceded. But what if, what if there will be those 50? What if you find 50 righteous people? He said, I won't destroy it for those 50. What about 40 or 30? 20? And then he said, I've been, <laughs> I've been so bold to speak to the Almighty God. You know, but just one more question. What if there are 10 righteous people? He said, I will, I will not destroy it. I'll spare it for the 10. So God is slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, willing to forgive, but will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. <clears throat> My grandfather... Occasionally, regularly maybe, prays to God and he says, if it be your will, may we uh, form some of the ten righteous that may save this Sodom. In Jeremiah chapter 18, this is as good a time as any to introduce Jeremiah chapter 18. Because this extends what Exodus 34 is telling us. It's... It's really, it really is just an extension, not an addition. But it helps us to see how consistent and how clear it is um, for God to, to, to act these ways. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, Arise, go down to the potter's house, and there I shall announce my words to you. Then I went down to the potter's house, and there he was, making something on a wheel. But the vessel that he was making was spoiled in the hand of the potter, so he remade it into another vessel, as it pleased the potter to make. So he can do what he uh, pleases. Well, verse 5, Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Can I not, O house of Israel, deal with you as this potter does, declares the Lord? Behold, you are like clay in the potter's hands. So are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Um, so again, is God uh, volatile or fickle or... Um, Changing, and there's a word I'm trying to land on here, and I'm not finding it. Is God vacillating between different ways? And I can do what I please, and it's no. Notice verse 7. At one moment, I might speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to uproot, to pull down, to destroy it. Okay, let's start thinking of our examples. Maybe you're already doing it. When had God spoken? And what, think, think about your... Now, when had God spoken against different nations? You can think of a number of examples. That he was going to overthrow them. 
in one case, in 40 days. Remember, Nineveh? Nineveh is one of the, uh, Nineveh is going to be a beautiful example of this. He says at one moment, I might speak concerning a nation. I'm going to destroy it. Verse 8, if that nation against which I have spoken turns from its evil, I will relent concerning the calamity I had spoken to bring upon it. So God is going to be consistent with this. It's not that he's changing, changing. No, he's, con- tr- he's true to this. This part of his character that really is extending what we've said before. And then in verse 9, he says, Or, at another moment, I might speak concerning a nation, concerning a kingdom, to build up, to plant it, where I'm, I'm going to bless them. Um, they're, they're, they're my people, right? You think of Israel, especially when you read this. If it does evil in my sight by not obeying my voice, then I will, and he uses this phrase, I will think better. That's, I think, his just way of saying, to explain to us what he will do. I don't know that he's, it's difficult to say that God is thinking better, but in, in this sense, he will think better of the good of which, with which I pl- promised to bless it. And then he says, so you speak to the house of Judah in Israel, or in, in yeah, Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord, behold, I am fashioning calamity against you. And devising a plan against you. Oh, turn back, each one of you, from his evil way. And reform your ways and your deeds. So there's the opportunity for repentance. Opportunity for forgiveness. Opportunity for the Lord to show his love and not his wrath. We said that Jonah and Nineveh was a, a, a really striking example of this. And it really is. Because in Jonah chapter 1, arise, Jonah, go to Nineveh, that great city, a big city, a bad city, and cry against it for their wickedness has come up before me. Well, this is the part everybody knows very well, right? Jonah runs off, but okay, now the word of the Lord comes to him a second time. All right, now you go. You've learned who I am and that I'm serious about what I'm telling you to do. You go and speak what I tell you against that city. So in Jonah 3, verse 4, yet 40 days he goes through the city, all day, saying, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be destroyed. And here is an amazing, amazing thing. And sadly, you don't see it nearly often enough. Verse 5, then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the least of them to the greatest of them. I... We are truly out of time. So skip down to um, verse 8. He says, let us, let all of these people be covered in sackcloth. Mourn and call on God earnestly. In verse 9, he says, who knows? God may turn and relent. This is the order of the king. And withdraw his burning anger so we we shall not perish. He says, who knows? This might be the case. He's hopeful. We know. God will do it. Because Jeremiah, we're reading Jeremiah right before this. God will do it. And, and uh, in verse 10, when God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, he relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them. And he did not do it. Amazing. And of course, Jonah became angry. And notice what he says about God. This is, come on. This is pretty bad. And he's, he's upset. He's like, this is what I knew this would happen. He says, 
I knew, chapter 4, verse 2, I knew that thou art a gracious and compassionate God, right? These are the very words we're trying to really, really take in. Gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness. And the one who relents concerning calamity. To be that in tune with God's character and then to be uh, that far out of line with it is, is pretty bad. Israel, as we said, was a, a really prime example of this. I guess we're just going to, honestly, we're just going to have to summarize this. But in Jeremiah 25, the Lord said uh, through Jeremiah that he's been sending the prophets these, uh, was it 23 years I'm forgetting now, but he was sending the prophets. It says again and again. That's what my translation says. The, the actual phrase is rising early and sending them. He's like, all day long, I've cried out to a stubborn and obstinate people. And what happened was he ended up having to throw them away as well because they didn't heed his voice. And the first century Jews showed this uh, to the nth degree, there's some very interesting statements that tie in very carefully. Look at Matthew chapter 24, 23, and verse 29. So the first century Jews. Woe to you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous. See, they, are, they loved God and his prophets, right? No. And said, if we had been living in the days of our fathers, we, have not, we would not have been, you know, killing the prophets. But he says, you bear witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Sons in what way? Sons in the way they're exactly like their parents. He says, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. You serpents, you brood of vipers, how shall you escape the sentence of hell? Behold, I'm sending you prophets and wise men. And some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That, now here's, that upon you may fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. Is this fair? Yeah. Because they had filled it up. They were the children in the wickedness of their fathers. All the righteous blood shed on earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the altars. Truly, I say to you, all these things shall come upon this generation. And within that generation, I guess this is the third or fourth generation in God's patience. They, um, they were destroyed and overthrown. And it happens again. You read it in Revelations of the, city, the harlot that is the city of Rome. And I'll be confident to say, I think it happened in the 1940s with Germany. They reached the height of their wickedness, and God threw them away. And it will happen to the country we live in if this country does not humble itself and repent. And we need to be part of that help. Godly men like David knew the Lord, and they're impressed with his character in Exodus chapter 4. And when in their writings, this is a summary of about a page of notes that I'm simply not going to be able to share with you tonight. So there will be maybe sometime in the future a part two, I guess. 
David repeats these very things about the Lord. Psalm 34 says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their cry. For the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. But sometime look at Psalm 103. It's actually the song that gives us our song, 10,000 Reasons. He's saying he's rich in love and he's slow to anger. His name is great and his heart is kind. In Psalm 103, David repeats those things that we find in Exodus 34 and says, you are that compassionate and gracious God. And we're going to bless your name because of it. Um, I apologize. I'm disappointed that we didn't get to explain everything that was going on in Ezekiel 18. I bit off more than I can chew. But suffice it to say that if the children of Israel had known the Lord, they would have known that in His ways, the soul that sins will die. And His ways are right. And their ways were not right. And, and I will use this as the basis for our invitation, if a godly man turns and does what is wicked and wrong, God says, I'll destroy him for the wickedness. I'm not even going to remember the righteousness. Because he cannot leave the guilty, right, unpunished. Can't do it. He also says that, you know, the son, this son is not like his father. And he is doing what is good and true and right. And God will make him, cause him to live. He's not going to die, and not, certainly not going to die for the sins of his father. This is a hasty summary. But he says, there could be a wicked person, and this happens, who realizes the error of his ways and turns to the Lord. The truth of the matter is that God says he will live. He's not going to die. I will forgive, and his iniquities are not remembered anymore. And they are removed um, as far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our iniquities from us. And as far as heaven is above the earth, so great is his loving kindness toward us. Here's another summary of a lot of important concepts. The Lord's loving kindness is ultimately seen when he himself came to earth in the form of the Messiah, and Jesus, and because of the great love with which he loved us, and in an effort, uh, in Ephesians chapter 2, to demonstrate his, the riches of his grace and the riches of his loving kindness toward us in Christ Jesus, he saved us when we were enemies. You, you know all the passages I'm referring to, Romans 5 and John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but shall have everlasting life. So, God's people are the ones who know him, who know that he is the compassionate God and the gracious God, the God who punishes the wicked, but who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin, and he is perfectly, perfectly consistent uh, to his character. Um, and we owe our allegiance to him. Maybe it's time that you turned to the Lord in repentance. We're ready to help you with that. Whatever your needs might be, we're ready to help you. And we will do that as we stand and sing.